People of God, hear these words from Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You know, comfort, it can be a dangerous thing, okay? You can, when you get comfortable, you can refuse to try new things. You can refuse to step out of your comfort zone. You can refuse to even, you know, stop growing, being stretched, being changed. How many of us know friends and families who just won't try that new type of food? That we, yeah, thank you, Emily. Because naturally, we want to be comfortable. We want to like the things we like. We like to go back. It's the nostalgia. Oh, it's the things that we know. Things that are close and dear to our hearts. We don't want things to change. In a crazy world, things seem to be changing every day. We want that consistency. We want everything to be so predictable. But that's exactly not only what Isaiah is writing to us about in this passage. It's what we read in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all our debts, right? We, we hear these words of comfort. It's, it's, what, it's what we as Reformed Christians, one of the first things often we read when we're exploring this interesting tradition, this tradition that maybe we, we had heard about before and we decided to Google Reformed Church Portland, right? I know some of you have done that. It's this comfort, this, this dangerous thing that we know can cause us to be stagnant in our walk with Christ. But it can also, it can bring so much more, right? Because we know that the passage, the, the, the passage in the Heidelberg Catechism, it's not written, it was not written in order to make people feel complacent, make them feel safe, make them feel as if they didn't need to do anything at all, right? It was written to address the issues that were going on in the day, to address the injustices that the leaders of the church were exploiting people in their communities. They were taking advantage of them and to say to that, I am not going to give you this assurance that Christ gives you. That is not what you're going to receive from me here in church. Actively teaching that you can't truly be sure that Christ, that your life is Christ and he's got you. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we commemorate tonight is this Reformed tradition. Not, not a tradition that has, that has the, the market on comfort. No, we don't believe that. There are other Christian traditions. We're not saying that, but we're reminded in Isaiah, what he is telling to, what God is telling to his people, that they belong to him. They're his. 
and this comfort, this, this comfort this pa- that we he- read about in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, that so many of us find peace, find joy in. It's not the type of comfort that tells you not to go anywhere, to sit down, to relax, kick up your feet. Jesus has got this. No, because in our passage, that's not what Isaiah is saying. He's saying there will be waters that will wash over you. There will be fire, and you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to go into it. But here's the thing. God is with you. Christ is with you. Christ says, I've got you. We're going to do this together. The comfort is, not that you don't have to do anything. That you, the comfort is, you're going to do things. Things are going to be happening to you. But I'm there with you. Christ is there with you. He's got us in his hands. So much so, like we say, we don't even have claim to our own lives anymore. Christ claims our lives. So this is the comfort that allows an Augustinian monk to, 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 take, up, to take, take up issue with the established church and to tell the corrupt body that you are not doing these things right. I'm willing to stand up. I'm willing to sacrifice my cushy position in order to say what's right. I, it's, it's, it's a comfort that allows people to stand up and, and speak out about the exploitation of people. It's the type of comfort that says, I understand that if I accept Christ, my family may reject me or worse. But we're reminded in Isaiah, in our tradition, that we're not our own, but we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Post Tenebras Lux, after darkness, light. This became the motto of the Reformation, and one of the spots that light was shed was on the ordinary lives and work of Christians. The text I have uh, to read is Matthew 11, and I'm going to read verses uh, 28 through 30. The Word of God. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The text says, all who labor and are heavy laden. This could describe the mass of Christians In Europe in the 16th century, they labored, they were heavy laden. This could describe ordinary Christians, people in the pews, who were taught by the establishment church of that day that they could find no joy and they should take no hope from anything that they did in their daily lives. 
that their tasks of farming and building and raising families, that they should consider these things insignificant before God, at best, perhaps repugnant to God, at worst. They were left paralyzed. They were left thinking their lives were very ordinary and meaningless. And of course, they were left in fear for the state of their souls. Well, there was another path that was opened up for Christians in those days. This was the extraordinary life. This was supposedly a sure path to heaven. It was to become a monk. To appease God's wrath and merit eternal life, monks were instructed that they should be busy doing good works, such as climbing castle stairs on their knees or saying hundreds of Hail Marys. The church of the day created a new class of Christians and gave them impossibly difficult loads to bear. Young Martin Luther decided that it was safer to bear the second load, and he spent his days and nights as a monk in rituals of prayer, confession, penance, so much so that his confessor, the person he went and confessed his sins to, said, Luther, you have to stop coming to me and confessing your sins. You're coming too often. No, no one can receive, receive all of this confession. I'm too, I'm, I'm too busy. Please stop confessing all these sins. For Luther, that wasn't very satisfactory. By God's grace, Luther began to understand that the reason that the monks were so absorbed in these rituals of confession and penance was because they didn't really understand that righteousness comes from God. That righteousness, the righteousness which God demands, is impossible for people to produce from their good works. But the same righteousness that God demands is one that he gives himself as a free gift. That the words of Jesus, I will give you rest, is a promise from God. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He meant by that that his yoke is not easy for him. The yoke that he had to bear for our salvation was incredibly hard. Our Heidelberg Catechism says that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Christ could and would bring us rest, but only because he was willing to endure God's wrath, be sent into exile and unrest. On the cross. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, offers us this rest. Luther understood this finally. He preached this. He wrote of this. The message spread. But not only did the masses of Christians and even those outside of the church begin to hear of justification by faith alone, something that would free us from the the penalty of sin, they, they, they looked at verses like the, this passage in Matthew and they, they, they noticed other things also. Not only 
was Christ promising a freedom from sin, but an energy to serve. Notice in, it, in the text that we read, it says, Jesus says, he, he actually commands us. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This text not only talks about resting, but working and learning and serving. And John Calvin was able to make this connection between resting and serving. He says, a person who is trying to save himself is going to confine all of his thoughts in this life to himself. Luther said, I know exactly what you're talking about. In fact, my confessor said, I can't even come confess my sins because all of my thoughts, the only thing I can think of is my sin before God. A person who's trying to save himself is going to confine all of his thoughts in this life to himself. But a person who is freed from having to strive for his own salvation is going to be freed for the first time to care for his neighbor. And Christians heard this message. And it completely transformed their ordinary lives. They entered into the world for the first time, freed from the wrath of God, freed from the penalty of sin, covered with the righteousness of Christ. They entered into the world freed to love their neighbor, to worship God through serving others. It also gave monks the opportunity to exit the monastery. As as Luther was one of the first ones to go, he called to his fellow uh, monks, he said, These words, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. (laughs) Christ has supplied the good work to save us. God doesn't need your good works any longer. Your neighbor does, though, as only Luther could say something like that. So this is is true for Jesus' day. This is true for Luther's day. This is true for our day. We, We live in a day where people are labored and heavy burdened, and maybe you feel that. By faith, and only by faith, you may be joined to Christ. Your your good works can't bring you to God. But your faith brings you to him, to be yoked to Christ. Yoked to, to Christ in order to be freed from the burden of our sins. Yoked to Christ in order to be filled for service to others. Let's pray. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no end. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Amen. This evening I've been asked to take a look at the two verses from Romans chapter 1 not far into the chapter, that were significant verses in the Reformation. And these are the words of Paul to the the church in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
Now, why would Paul write that? He's just greeted the church in Rome and he's thanked God for them and he's anxious to preach the gospel there. And then he brings up this, this, this thing that is lurking beneath. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I want to preach it to you, and I'm not ashamed of it. Now, why would Paul say that? He'd say it because he knows what he's about to write. He's about to write to them that everyone is under condemnation of sin. That everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, know God, but they've rejected God. And he knows that's not going to sit well with the Gentiles in the midst. And the Gentiles are going to think, that's illogical. We're Greek thinkers, and that doesn't make any sense to us. And he knows that the Jews are going to say, that's anathema. Because we've got the law. And we've got righteousness by the law. And he's going to come along in chapter 3 and say, and it doesn't matter if you are Gentile, you're not good enough. And if you're a Jew, you're not good enough. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he knows. And so he's anticipating, as John Calvin says on this passage, he's anticipating the objections. And he says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. After all, it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Did you hear that? It's not power for salvation for everyone who believes. It's the power of God for salvation. In other words, salvation isn't just something that's, that's put out there and, and you, you know, yeah, that sounds like a good message. I guess I'll accept that. I can take that. I'll buy that. No. It's the work of God in the heart and soul of men and women that bring them to the realization that they are sinners and they need a Savior. That they are indeed have fallen short of the glory of God. And they will never ascend to that. They are not perfect. As our brother said, people are saying, yeah, I might even be a sinner. They don't come to that realization except for the Spirit of God works in the heart of human beings. So why would these passages, these two verses in Romans be significant in the Reformation? Why would it be so? Well, what was the situation in the Reformation? Situation in the Reformation, by the way, we were reminded, uh, a couple of us, uh, uh, Philip and I, went uh, spent uh, the weekend at the United Reformed uh, Church on Friday night and then Saturday and listened to Dr. David Van Drunen. And one of the things that he was talking about, uh, divine covenants and Reformed um, thinking uh, for ordinary life, and one of the things that he reminded us that this is a, was a reformation in the church. It wasn't a restoration. It's the Mormons who believe that the spirit was taken away from the church early after the, uh, the first church. The spirit was taken away. And there was 
thousands of years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, until in the 18, whatever it was, 30s, um, Joseph Smith bumped into those gold tablets and those glasses that he could magically read, and the church was, what was the word? Restored. The church came back. The spirit and the word came back to the church. That's not what we as Protestants believe. We don't believe that the spirit and the word was ever taken away from the church. We believe that uh, the basic foundational doctrines of the Trinity, the dual natures of Christ, uh, 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 the atonement, St. Anselm's work on the atonement, Cordeo Omos, why the God-man, why was it necessary for Jesus to be both man and God? The church got those things right. We didn't need to reinvent the wheel. In fact, we celebrate the history of the church. Catholic church history is our church history. But there were some problems. Because if you wanted the word, you didn't walk over to your bookshelf and pick up the Bible and read it. You had to go through a priest. That in itself maybe isn't the fault of the Catholic Church just because the vast majority of people in those days didn't read. And it had only been a short time since the printing press had been invented, and so there weren't multiple copies of the Bible for every... I mean, I mean, how many people have at least five copies of the Bible in your house, right? We all do. Well, they didn't have one. So if you wanted the word of God, you had to go through the priest. And if you wanted to confess your sins, you had to go through the priest. And if you wanted to make sure that your dead relatives didn't stay in purgatory any longer, you had to not only go to the priest, but you had to take indulgences. After all, every time a dime in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And if you wanted to pray, if you wanted to have a conversation with the God who created you, you had to go through the priest or through the saints or through the Virgin Mary. And if you wanted a truly holy, righteous life, you had to leave your family, you had to leave your vocation, and you had to enter a holy order and become a monk or a nun or a priest. And if you wanted to maintain the righteousness that you get from the Mass, you had to always come back to the Mass. So why would Paul include these words, and why would the Reformers think so highly of them? Because of verse 17. Everything about medieval religion was about performance and works righteousness. But in verse 17, Paul writes and says, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A true righteous life doesn't mean that you have to leave the fields or leave the blacksmith shop, or the weaver's loom. In order to have a truly holy life, you don't have to go into the ministry, or up to the mountain, or put on a hair shirt, or eat locusts and honey. But you can have children, 
to the glory of God. You can be married to the glory of God. You can till the ground to the glory of God. Your righteousness is not repeatedly confessing your sins and coming to the Mass. Your righteousness is by faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. And that does not spoil, nor does it perish, nor does it fade. It is from by faith, from first to last. Praise be to our God. I'd like to share a meditation from 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to that passage. In the Pew Bible, it's located on page 818. Second Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 21. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. In a wonderful little book called Long Before Luther, tracing the heart of the gospel from Christ to the Reformation, the author writes this. The reformers recognized that Jesus did not actually become a sinner on the cross, yet God punished him as if he were a sinner, so that in Christ, believers might be treated as if they were righteous. That is what verse 21 is all about. The theologians call this imputation. That God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Imputation or imputed righteousness. This is a huge part of the Reformation and what Luther and Calvin and the others discovered, and it has a ton to do with how we live out our faith in Christ in Portland in 2019, almost 2020. Everything to do with how we live, because it tells us that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that satisfies a holy and perfect God, is not earned, but it's given to us. A lot of us grew up with this idea, or we think about this idea of our sins are forgiven, and that's an amazing part of following Jesus. And that was brought out through the Reformation as well. I think of that as we're going from negative 10 on the scale to zero. 
We're going to zero. The, the slate is wiped clean. But God's word tells us, and the reformers brought out this idea, that not only are our sins wiped clean, but we are given Jesus' righteousness. So that's like going from zero to ten, to the end of the scale. And it's not just, it's not just, you know, go back to the Garden of Eden and try it, try it again. You know, do better, try harder, do more this time. A lot of us think like this. I know I think like this, but it's, it's not true. It's not true. In the new heavens, in the world that is coming, in the kingdom where every knee bows to Jesus, we will not be able to sin. We will not be able to sin. I can't even wrap my mind around that. But that's imputed righteousness. That's what Christ has done and what he's given to us. And it's not just about the new heavens and the new earth and what's coming. It's about today. Right now, every follower of Jesus is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, a reformed pastor, he says, We are as righteous as Jesus because the only righteousness we have is Jesus' righteousness. Amazing. Amazing. How, how am I righteous? How am I just? I, can, I know all the bad stuff I've done. I can make a list to you, even today, the last 24 hours. If we're honest, we think about all the ways we've sinned against God, against our neighbor, by not doing what we should have done and doing what we should not have done. If we're honest with ourselves, if we have any amount of clarity about ourselves, we know that we're sunk, that we're helpless, that the hymn that we sung this morning, I Need Thee Every Hour, isn't just a song, it's a reality. And that's why Jesus' imputed righteousness is so important. Because instead of being sunk, instead of being lost, instead of being doomed to hell, like Luther struggled with. The priest, the priest puts his hand on the lamb and he's transferring that sin to the scapegoat. And Jesus has become that scapegoat. Jesus has become the final priest. And it's all transferred onto him. And Jesus has done that for you and me. And that's why he's worthy of worship. That's why he's worthy of living our lives for him. It matters. It matters what we believe. It matters how we live our lives and the habits we form and the way that we raise our children and the conversations we have. The things that the reformers discovered from God's word, the reforming of the church, it's so practical for today. We need it for today. It has to do with what we sing. It has to do with how we work, how we relate. There was this controversy a few years ago about a song that we played tonight in Christ Alone. Because a denomination wanted to change the lyrics. The Gettys wrote, The wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God was satisfied. That's that's what it's about. That's what we're talking about. The righteousness of God was given because God's wrath is satisfied. 
It's not only what they changed the lyrics to, the love of God was magnified. No. That's totally different. The Getty said no. The wrath of God, because God is a holy and perfect God, and his righteousness is placed on that scapegoat, on Jesus. And we, his people, his bride, receive the righteousness. All of us are going to wake up tomorrow morning and we are going to put one pant leg on after the other. Right? You better. You better get dressed tomorrow morning. So when you do that, when you get dressed, put on the righteousness of Christ. Put it on. Put on Christ. How would that change the way you look at yourself? You wouldn't beat yourself up anymore. You wouldn't think just the first half that I'm a terrible, broken sinner, but you would know that you've been redeemed and that you have put on Christ and that we wear his righteousness and that's how God sees us. The truth of God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your powerful word that everything has been fulfilled in Christ. That you have taken away our sin, that you have given us Christ's righteousness, that you loved us enough to do that. May we live out of this new identity as your children, saved by grace through faith. Thank you for the promises that we've heard this night. May your Holy Spirit rest on us as we live them out. In Christ's name we pray, amen.